Welcome to the Free to Choose Media Podcast. Today's podcast is titled Democracy and Rent Seeking. Recorded in 1992, Nobel laureate James M. Buchanan and Professor Gordon Tulloch discuss events in the public choice arena since the publication of their groundbreaking 1962 book, The Calculus of Consent, Logical Foundations of Constitutional Democracy. Listen now, and don't forget to subscribe to get updates each week for the Free to Choose Media Podcast. Well, we have with us for this academic conversation today, Professor Gordon Tulloch, a longtime uh, co-worker with me, a former colleague who uh, worked uh, with me in writing The Calculus of Consent, which was published in 1962. That's a long time ago. That book has had a measure of success. It's, uh, it's, if I read it wrong, it's yeah, still selling. Yeah, still doing quite well, that's true. Um, what I'd like to ask you, Gordon, to start with is uh, just how do you assess the state of the world, and especially in politics uh, now, by comparison with uh, the way we looked at it in 19, uh, late 1950s, early 60s, when we wrote that book? Uh, what would be the distinctive differences of the way we look at the world today? From my standpoint, it's been a big improvement. Uh, let me begin by something talking about something that did not have anything to do with our book, and then go to what our book, I think, did have. And that is that what I might call the lunatic left has simply died. Russia is no longer with us. Uh, if you read uh, the left-wing journals, which to some extent I do, uh, they've sort of given up a lot of the ideas that they used to have. I wouldn't say they become sound conservative, but still, that's a big improvement, and it also, you find it in the newspapers, etc. Now, turning to what we were involved in, I think that we have succeeded among at least the scholars in getting rid, to a large extent, of this view that government is a virtuous organization going around doing good. Uh, there's no doubt it does good occasionally, as General Motors does good. But it's easier to understand General Motors if you assume they're primarily trying to make a profit than if you assume they're trying to do good. Similarly, with a democratic government, it's easier to understand it if you assume they're trying to get reelected than that they're trying to do uh, good. And that is a big change, and it's mainly in the scholarly field. And uh, I think our book had much to do with making it. Well, in one sense, though, don't you think that our book was really prior to the excesses of politics? There's a lot of attention now paid to the sort of excesses of modern politics, which our book did, uh, I think, help people to understand. I think we would agree on that. On the other hand, the book was, to me at least, written prior to the uh, really uh, spelling out of a lot of these uh, ac uh, excesses in real terms. And in one sense, you can say, uh, at least as far as I'm concerned, I might be a bit more pessimistic now about the outlook for democracy than I was, say, when we wrote that book. Mm -hmm. Actually, I uh, was always rather pessimistic, the outlook for democracy. Yeah. You know, you frequently criticize me for my deep interest in yeah. China and the Orient, uh, where democracy has never flourished. Although it may be now, there are now some genuine democracies out there. But um, uh, I... It's hard to say. If you look at actual indexes, in South America, for example, at the moment, there's only one uh, country that speaks a Latin language, Cuba, that is not a democracy. And that's a, a completely unprecedented mm -hmm. in South American history. Uh, on the other hand, it's awfully easy to look at 
uh, almost any country today and feel that the governments are getting into traps which they can't get out of. The welfare state is just not financeable, uh, granted what people are willing to pay in taxes. And in some places, once again, South America, uh, many South American countries have simply stopped paying the old age pensions. Which Do you think ultimately the welfare state will be dismantled in that way, simply a failure uh, financially and then simply just unravel? Will it have to get much worse before it gets better? I'm afraid that will happen. Obviously, it's not what I would like to have happen, but I am afraid that that is just exactly what is going to happen. Uh, it is, however, notable that at least two countries in Europe, uh, Sweden under a socialist government, and Italy, under a reformist government, have begun taking measures to unravel it without just waiting till it breaks down. Now, of course, both of them have got a welfare state that's much more, uh, whether you want to call them developed or extortionate, which is the mm -hmm. word I'd use, mm -hmm. than ours. Um, I have hopes that maybe we can do something, but frankly, it is a terribly difficult problem. Well, to go back just for a minute, uh, while we're on this general point about comparing how we looked at the world, uh, in the 50s and 60s to now, what would you think or what do you think of Newt Gingrich's uh, statement that he made apparently in his book uh, that the peak time of sort of the American culture politically was 1955 and that the 60s destroyed all that? Uh, well, I'm willing to concede that, the, that the, the 60s destroyed an awful lot of things. But I don't think the peak time was 1955. I think that the... Um, the peak of certain attitudes, certain approaches, was highest in 1955, mm -hmm. uh, and the 60s did destroy it. But I think we've recovered, and uh, in the period since then, uh, there have been enough changes in attitude that I think we mm -hmm. are making a decided gain. I'm optimistic. Well, that's, that's encouraging to hear. Let me shift a little bit now to another topic which uh, you have been instrumental in really being the seminal thinker that came along a little bit after the calculus of consent, uh, the the whole area of rent-seeking, which came out first in your uh, 1967 paper and then was picked up by Ann Kruger and others and is still a very viable uh, research program. Uh, what I want to ask you about rent-seeking was uh, looking at your own intellectual development here and the origins of your own thinking, uh, what do you think was really the background influence is leading you to, to that insight. Well, in the first place, I think there's no doubt at all the fact that I had spent some time in the Orient and seen these high cultures which were living in bitter poverty and where the principal form of activity of a bright person was to try and get some kind of revenue from the government. I think that's no doubt true. Also, the fact that for a very short period of time I had practiced law in Chicago under the Kelly Nash machine may have, have affected that. But actually the specific thing that sent it off was a, in essence an accident. There was an article uh, which I didn't like and on the other hand uh, thinking about it, trying to put my hands on what the, I didn't like, that particular article you're talking about mm -hmm. uh, came out. Uh, interestingly enough, uh, it was turned down by the three leading economic journals, two of them on the grounds that everybody already knew it and one on the grounds that it was wrong. And one of the letters that I got yeah. was written by, uh, turning it down, was written by a Nobel Prize winner. So <laughs> the, uh, it's, it's a clear case of uh, yeah. a radical yeah. change that's yeah. too radical. 
Well, like all very good ideas, it's a very simple idea, namely that if profit is there, you're going to have people trying to get that profit. And it exactly. applies to particular political favors as well as everything else. And, and spelling that out, as I remember, the, the title of your uh, piece was the, the Welfare Economics of, of Tariffs, Theft, and Monopoly, or, or vice versa. Yes. I, mean, I have, may not have the sequence right. And it, it, it really has taken off. And um, Ann Kruger did a lot of empirical estimates how much of the resources were wasted in Turkey and India in particular, yes. uh, going into import quotas and so forth and so on. And, and then both at the formal level and at the informal level of the in level of institutional practice, there's still a great deal of literature going on in this rent-seeking area. And it's a genuine research program, it seems to me. Could I say one other thing yeah. about it? You said it's an obvious idea. Yeah, yeah. When I am teaching it, my problem is to convince students that before I thought it up, people didn't realize it. Right. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I know. Well, that is the hard part. It's true. Yes. It's true. I know, as a matter of fact, yeah. I taught it. Yeah. I taught the old regime and yeah. didn't realize it was yeah. false. Yeah. <laughs> well, uh, shifting a little bit to something else, um, you're. Um, sort of way of looking at, at things as compared to mine, uh, although we, we joined together in that one book that's had some influence, I think uh, there's a, a clear distinction between your interests and mine. Uh, my interest has always been much more, I guess you'd say, ultimately in the normative, and in particular I've looked more at the, at the formation of constitutions and rules, whereas you've been far more interested in the sort of the way the system works. You've been much closer to the model of the positive scientist. Mm -hmm. And as a result, I think you have been much more interested in what we would call the, the precursors of public choice, mm -hmm. uh, in particular, Duncan Black. Or perhaps you might like to say a little bit about Duncan and his okay. influence here. By the way, I, I agree yeah. in your distinction, but both yeah. of these things are necessary. It's, yeah. it's, it's, yeah. We have specialized yeah. a bit. Yeah. Uh, Duncan Black, um, who I'm now putting together, uh, his posthumous paper. I'm glad you mentioned that, yes. Is yeah. uh, one that uh, uh, Kluwer will have them out in his first volume next year. Uh, Duncan Black was a uh, Scot and never really had a big reputation as an economist. Uh, he, uh, however, was convinced that, that things should go outside of economics, and he made the first big steps uh, in producing uh, formal models of, economic, of political activity. Uh, at this point, he, being an honest man, he in a way damaged his own reputation because he did historical research and he found that a man at the time of the French Revolution and then another very famous man, Lewis Carroll, had also done work in this area. <coughs> and he published that with the result that uh, he himself demonstrated he had not uh, originated it, although psychologically he had. Mm -hmm. I mean, there no, everyone had completely forgotten uh, these things that he dredged up. But in any event, his reputation never got up, I think, to the point where it should have been, although I, I have to say, in deference to the conventional wisdom in this area, uh, that his work was rather primitive in many areas. But it was the pioneer. And in fact, you know, uh, partly as a result of you and my work in bringing him to the United States, mm -hmm. he had a much bigger reputation in the United States than he did in England. <laughs> Yeah, he never did uh, get much of a repute in England. No. And, and again, like uh, Condorcet and like Lewis Carroll, uh, his work was mainly concentrated on 
uh, voting rules in very small groups, yes. and in particular the uh, implications of majority rule. Yes, and of course he was a very firm majoritarian, which mm -hmm. I'm not, and I don't mm -hmm. think you are either. Both of us think you can do right. somewhat better. Yeah. Um, and uh, he actually was rather shocked at some parts of the wealth of the of the calculus consent, particularly the log rolling aspect mm -hmm. of the matter. Uh, so he. Uh, uh, he was very important as a pioneer, but we've gone on beyond him now. Well, how do you, uh, and of course that explains your interest um, uh, in, your, in the more positive aspects of, of public choice here, how voting rules work, how majority rules work in particular. And you're also one of the originators along with Anthony Downs, uh, although I guess you can find some of this elsewhere, but in this whole notion of uh, rational voter abstention. Yeah, actually, uh, uh, Anthony Downs did more of it than I did. I, that can have very well happen, very easily happen, but we don't observe it very often. And in fact, many ways, uh, we wonder why not. Mm -hmm. uh, I think that most people, uh, in fact, do vote because they get some pleasure out of it. Yeah. Uh, but uh, the, the the argument is that, that if you're voting in the presidential election, the likelihood that uh, your vote will make a difference is so small that it's not worth your time. Now, that's true. But on the other hand, people go out to football games and cheer wildly, knowing perfectly well that their cheers won't change the outcome. Actually, the, the investment in uh, the, the fact of the large numbers and that you won't invest much in information is probably more serious than the fact that you won't vote. Yes, the, yes. And that, of course, is clear. You, the, uh, the, the theory that people... There's no, well, once again, uh, you don't really learn a great deal about football in general except as a hobby if you're going to cheer your team mm -hmm. on. Now, it turns out that improving your vote by learning has very little effect on you yourself. And if you don't like it, uh, then you're likely to be pretty well informed. And the public opinion polls, when they look into information, usually turn out very bad information. I suspect, however, that most of the people who are watching us talk will be that very small part of the population that is rather well informed because they follow yeah. politics as a hobby, as in fact both you and yeah. I do. Yeah. What do you think of this um, Brennan Lemaski book, uh, Democracy and Decision, in which they push this sort of, sort of logic to, I think, more or less its extreme? Well, I also think they went to extremes, and I yeah. gather that's what most of the critics have yeah. uh, said about it. Uh, it um, uh, on the other hand, uh, there's intellectually there's much to be said for carrying a given idea out yeah. to the uh, bitter end yeah. Yeah. in order to illustrate what can be done. Well, let's uh, shift a little bit another area where you and I have both worked on from different perspectives, but also related to a, a seminal thinker in this whole area of public choice, social choice, and that is Arrow, Kenneth Arrow. Uh, his book, uh, Social Choice and Individual Values, created a big stir in the early 50s, and uh, it's referred to by many people who work in areas related to us. Yes. Uh, give us a little uh, fill-in on your work okay, in relation to Arrow, I should say both then and now. Yeah. So you yeah. started yeah. the attack on yeah. Arrow, yeah. you may recall. That was before we'd even met. Yeah. Um, I have been uh, puzzled by the fact that you have what appears to be a proof that, demo that democratic voting would be full of paradoxes. And although it certainly doesn't want very well, it doesn't seem to be full of paradoxes. You don't see Congress reversing itself mm -hmm. regularly and so forth. 
And I should say I finally, after thinking about this for a long time, decided that the reason was that uh, he didn't realize that uh, vote trading went on and that the vote trading leads to a market process which may not be a good outcome, but at least is definite. Mm -hmm. And having reached that conclusion, I then proceeded to reread his book. And I found out that on page six and seven, he says that his theorem does not apply provided people are not draw, literally voting for their preference, but are voting because somebody has promised to vote something mm -hmm. for them. Mm -hmm. uh, so, so he himself uh, said that his theorem didn't apply to real politics. I should say I wrote this up, sent a copy to him, and eventually had it published. And from time to time, he tells me that he's going to answer, but he never has. Well, how do you relate his work to Duncan Black? I know you've done some work on that. This, this is very difficult. Uh, Duncan Black sent, uh, did the Black and Newing book. Most of the people on TV won't have heard of it, but yeah. you know of it, yeah. which is actually quite a profound and difficult mm -hmm. book. Quick, big, little tiny book. Little tiny book. It was out of print for a while. We yeah. didn't get yeah. it back into print. He sent that off to a journal uh, as an article publication. And uh, Black always thought that the referee for this thing was uh, Arrow himself. Mm -hmm. In any event, there was an 18-month delay, and then mm -hmm. the thing, he received a letter saying that they'd be delighted to publish it if he would refer to Kenneth Arrow's mm -hmm. work, mm -hmm. which is the new, the book came out during mm -hmm. this period. And knowing Arrow, I'm fairly confident that there's no hanky-panky mm -hmm. here, but I, mm -hmm. Black, who did not owe Arrow, always yeah. suspected uh, something. Uh, wrong there or depressing. Uh, you can see why he would. Uh, in any event, uh, he uh, did, did not ask the journal. He withdrew it from the journal and published this, this little book, and it didn't get a vast mm -hmm. impulse. But I should say, once again, turning back to my view that Arrow's an honest man, uh, there is, in two chapters of Arrow, mm -hmm. fairly extensive giving of credit to Black. Mm -hmm. So. Uh, it does appear fairly certain that Black's suspicions, I think, were untrue. I can understand under the circumstances uh, why he... Yeah. Oh, I think their mindsets, and they worked in such different ways, I doubt if there's any spillover in uh, any deleterious also, yes. sort at all. But uh, it's interesting that, uh, that they were working the same field more or less early on, the same time. And, of course, the central idea that came out of that that was... That was picked up and discussed this, this whole notion of the majority voting cycle, where majority does not produce an equilibrium. Yeah. Uh, my own, uh, as you know, my own early reaction was, why would everybody expect an equilibrium? And if there was one, we wouldn't want it to happen. Uh, it seemed to me to be based on a misunderstanding of what democracy is all about. Oh, I know. Uh, but that was not picked up. It has been picked up more recently you know, again, but um, that was my, my... You were out of tune with your out times. Out of tune, absolutely out of tune. <laughs> if you'd only waited uh, 30 yeah, years to write yeah. that. <laughs> well, let's go back a little bit to the influences on um, your own ideas. You're generally credited as being one of the most original thinkers in our whole uh, profession. In part, maybe that would be attributed quite apart from just whatever is natural, but that might be attributed to the fact that you were trained as a lawyer. You had relatively little economic, but you might tell us a little bit about what training you did have in economics. Okay, firstly, I had a course lasting 10 weeks under Henry Simons using the famous uh, Economics 201 syllabus, which I've arranged to have brought back into print, by the way. And uh, this changed my life. It literally did. I was in the law school uh, mm -hmm. planning on being a lawyer, and I was about to be drafted. 
but this change, I began from the time, well, first place, it made me a sound monetarist. This is a firm, mm -hmm. and secondly, it gave me great admiration for market uh, operations. And I began reading economic journals from cover to cover. Now, I don't do that anymore. But in those days, there weren't so many of them, and they were easier to read. Uh, and did this for a number of years. In fact, when I was in China, well, having started, come back from the war and gone and finished Lotrin, I went into the diplomatic service, became a China language officer, went off to China. And I was in Tinsin when the communists seized the city, and they cut our communications. And so I had over a year in which, uh, really, we weren't doing anything, and I had access to a rather good USIS library, and I decided that I would study up mm -hmm. on things that would be of use to my career. It turned out they had nothing use whatsoever to my career, but, but they did convince mm -hmm. me that the political science at that day was not very good when it came to dealing with large bureaucracies, and that mm -hmm. hence the origin of my first book. Uh, but seriously, I think a great deal of my economics was taught to me by mm -hmm. Professor Buchanan. Uh, I think I taught you things, yeah. too. Yeah. But yeah. when I came to yeah. uh, Virginia, yeah. I, you had read my book on bureaucracy, yeah. Yeah. and that's what led you to offer me that grant. Well, when I first met you, you were carrying around this huge manuscript on bureaucracy. That's right. true. That right. is true. Okay. Yeah. Um, but in any event, uh, this I was uh, opposed to welfare economics mainly because its name when yeah. I met you and did not my uh, I had the, the right spirit, shall we say, but the technique was not there, yeah. and I think I got that very largely from you. Yeah. I should say I think I taught you things too, yeah. Yeah. so so I'm not entirely. Uh, but uh, this this was another major yeah. change in yeah. my way of thinking. And um, in a way, it's too bad that the University of Virginia was unwilling to yeah. keep me, and so I had to go away. Well, uh, your book on bureaucracy does tie in with something else and ties again with, you, with your background in economics. I remember when we were writing The Calculus of Consent, uh, you referred a lot to Mises. Yes. And uh, Mises, somehow or another, had much more influence on you than it did on me. Yes. Uh, well, by you now, you I, might I say how that came about. Okay, yeah. sure. Well, that's, yeah. Yeah. I was, uh, the Department of State sent me to study to be a China language officer. Uh, my Chinese, by the way, was never mm -hmm. very good. I didn't realize that my hearing makes mm -hmm. it difficult. Um, and they sent me to Yale. They couldn't send me to China because then it was under communist mm -hmm. control. And uh, walk, I went into the Yale bookstore one day, and there was a great big pile of books titled Human Action, a treatise on economics by a man I'd never heard of, and I bought one. And it was the first book on economics that I ever read all the way through, because although there had been a textbook assigned by Henry Simon's course, I got disgusted with it and didn't finish it. And it had, a, and I read it several times. It had immense intellectual impact on me, and I began reading other things by von Mises. Um, but um, I think, in the odd, you have a PhD from Chicago and I don't in economics. Mm -hmm. In an odd sense, I'm more Chicagoan than you. Yes, I think uh, that's true. And this, yeah. uh, uh, I think that was what sort of, I, 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 I was and remain a great admirer of von Mises. Mm -hmm. But I also think he made some mistakes, particularly in money, of course. Mm -hmm. And uh, I'm not. Um, uh, of course, you think he made mistakes too, but I think you, yeah. the, the fact that he influenced you more in the long run. He had a tremendous short run influence yeah. on me and not much long run influence. In your case, actually, I was the one who talked you into reading von Mises. Remember? I think that's true. I think that's true. And I've always found that Mises had no influence on me early on, but I've found Mises to be a great 
a place to go back and you work out something, you find the argument was already there in Mises. I, very that's, that's my uh, experience with that. But let me bring then another influence that surely is important, and you used to, yeah, at least you used to say it's important, I think you would still say, and that's Karl Popper. Yes. I know that you did uh, take off for a year and go out and study with Popper when he was out at the Advanced Study Center yes, right. at uh, Stanford. Uh, this is, is true. I think this is a matter of methodology, uh, scientific methodology, but I also became a great admirer of him in other respects. By the way, we had a correspondence up to uh, four months before he died, for example. By the way, his mind was still clear four months mm -hmm. before he died, which is uh, helpful. Uh, I was and remain a great admirer of him, although personally uh, he had various uh, defects. He was a hypochondriac and um, so mm -hmm. forth. But I think that he renovated the whole idea of science. Now, right now, the so-called philosophy of science, you can divide it into pre-popper and post-popper, mm -hmm. but post-popper, it has developed a good deal. So he's no longer uh, the young man studying philosophy mm -hmm. of science these days will mainly mm -hmm. study things who were written after popper. Mm -hmm. But he renovated and changed the whole thing abruptly and completely, and he certainly changed my uh, attitude very sharply. Mm -hmm. I think before I read, I met Popper, I would have been uh, a sort of anti-empirical work. Mm -hmm. By the way, the first book I read was his The Open Society and Its Enemies, mm -hmm. which made immense impact mm -hmm. on me. And that, of course, is not directly concerned right. with these things. Right. So it was really that, rather than his logic of scientific discovery, that, uh, that uh, got you? When I went to California, yeah. Uh, he was, uh, I hadn't read The Logic of Scientific Discovery, but he was writing a book which at that time was called The Logic After 20 Years, mm -hmm. and he, I went through it carefully with the intent of making certain his English was all idiomatic. Mm -hmm. And that, of course, thoroughly indoctrinated me with it. By the way, I'm one of the few people who wrote that because he was kept delaying publication and then it became uh, the, uh, the logic after 25 years and the logic after 30 yeah. years and so yeah. forth. But I actually read the first version. Well, uh, did, did, did Popper, was he the primary influence uh, on another book that you wrote, The Organization of Inquiry? Which no, I've, I've always thought that that was one of your better works that has paid very few people know it. Yes. But in where you got into the whole problem of the organization of science and how we organize the search for truth or I whatever. think that Popper was a very firm influence in yeah. getting me interested in the subject. Uh, he also kept me out of the philosophical side of it because I thought he'd done mm -hmm. what was and went to work on the empirical, uh, well, not the empirical, on the, let's say, the, the theory of the social structure. Mm. Uh, uh, so I think there's no doubt he got me started, but there isn't any uh, what I would call direct mm -hmm. uh, connection, uh, except perhaps the fact that I do and believe in testing hypotheses, which yeah. of course I learned yeah. from him, yeah. but I could have learned it from Friedman or you for that matter. Yeah. Well, d speaking of Popper, though, does lead me into another subject uh, which you have a current interest in and a continuing interest in. Uh, Popper, of course, uh, was influenced by and influenced Hayek. And particularly as Hayek developed uh, over the later years, many people have attributed the Hayekian uh, shift toward more and more emphasis on evolutionary aspects of, of, uh, of culture and of thought um, mm -hmm. uh, than, uh, than, than the early Hayek. And I know you have been very interested in evolutionary models all along, and particularly the intersection of economics and biology. I think you might say a few words about that. Well, in the first place, I'm in the process of trying to start a new economics and biology society, and if any of the uh, 
watchers yeah, of this are yeah. interested in this, I yeah. very much appreciate their yeah. sending me a, their yeah. name and address so yeah. that I can yeah. see to it yeah. they're circularized. Uh, I think that modern theoretical biology and modern theoretical economics are in essence mapping of each other. In both cases, you assume that something is being maximized subject to a constraint. One of the basic differences is in biology, we know what the, is being maximized, the number of descendants. Mm -hmm. In economics, it's not that easy. You may be maximizing all sorts of things. Mm -hmm. If you <coughs> look at uh, a modern biology journal, you'll see articles which really look very much like those you see in biology in economics journals, except that they uh, turn out to be about something the name of which is given in Latin yeah. in which you don't yeah. know what it is. Yeah. At least I don't yeah. know what it is yeah. in most cases. You know, it might be a bird, that kind of thing. But the the structural similarity is very great. And what I have done in general has not been to make use of biology for economics, but to make use of economics for biology. Mm -hmm. uh, I think the the uh, there is no doubt that we are evolved and uh, we are an efficient mm -hmm. mechanism. I mean, the fact that we, if we weren't efficient, we wouldn't be sitting here talking uh, to each other. Yeah. But uh, the evolution is extraordinarily complicated. I don't think we know much about it. And there are all sorts of aspects of human life that, that mm -hmm. a priori don't seem to have any evolutionary value. Mm -hmm. uh, but that's not true if you turn to, let's say, mosquitoes. They of evolution has designed but, that. Uh, but it's always seemed to me, of course, as you know, I'm not nearly as sympathetic to this field as, as you are. Yeah. It's always seemed to me that, that uh, you can only go so far with that because um, uh, man, to much more extent than any other uh, animal, um, uh, essentially chooses a lot of his own constraints. And a lot of the constraints within which we live and behave are chosen by us, either indirectly or indirectly. Oh, whereas that can't apply to, to nature, so to speak. Seem to me you overly limit the scope by, by using the bi biological well, analogies. I, I don't want to. I, I've, I think I've evaded in general saying anything about human society yeah. based on biology. Uh, whereas, I mean, my most recent book deals yeah. with social insects, yeah. and it's yeah. called The Economics of Non-Human Society. And I yeah. begin right at the beginning by saying that it yeah. will not help you with studying yeah. human society. Yes. I think it improves our knowledge of non-human societies. Mm -hmm. But uh, anyway, I, I, on the whole, I don't disagree with you all. I think it may well be, as we learn more and more about human society and human beings, and let's say 200 years from now, uh, we may be able to say uh, why some of the things that we observe people doing do have evolutionary value. At the moment, uh, it's uh, pretty hard to mm -hmm. Pretty hard to put your finger on any bit of human behavior and say, "Aha! In the old Stone Age, uh, that had evolutionary value, and that's the reason yeah. we now have it." Yeah. And you've got to remember, we haven't had enough generations since the old yeah. Stone Age, so that we should be radically changed from. Right. That's absolutely correct. Well, this has been an interesting survey. I think it surely uh, suggests uh, that. Uh, the scope of your interest is very, very wide. We've been hit spending and going over many of them. I've left out some in our discussion. We haven't had a chance. The time is, is running out on us here, and we haven't even had a chance to talk about federalism. I know that is, uh, you have a little book on that that's recently, but anyway, that'll just leave it for another time. Thank you very much. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you for inviting me. Want more episodes like this? Don't forget to subscribe and get updates each week for the Free to Choose Media Podcast.